Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. Grab your Bible and turn with me, please, to the book of Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And this is where we're going to begin uh, our study today. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the proclamation of the Word of the Lord here today. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse number 28. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up into a mountain to pray. And as Jesus prayed, the fashion of His countenance was altered, and His raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with Him two men, which were Moses and Elias, which is Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of His decease, which He should accomplish at Jerusalem. I, I think the wording there is amazing, that He would accomplish that at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Now we're continuing our series on red letters. This would be sermon number 19, and we're trying to work our way through the book of Luke. This would be sermon number 19, and we're still in chapter 9. There's just a lot in the scriptures here in Luke chapter 9. Now, I am very aware that what I read to you today has no red letters, that the next red letters that we find is verse number 41. But I feel like that a message on the majesty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the transfiguration, I feel like that it fits beautifully in the midst of our discussion here about the majesty, the glory, and the splendor of Jesus. Today, we are going to discuss the meaning of the transfiguration. We're going to talk about its effects upon our faith. We're also going to be challenged to allow God to transform us. So let's begin with an understanding of the word transformation. The Greek word translated as transfiguration or transformation is the word metamorphothē, which, which is the word that we get metamorphosis from which means a complete change of appearance and form. This is what happens to a caterpillar when he spins his cocoon and later on comes out as a butterfly. So we see that metamorphosis. We see that change that took place. It also is what happens to a tadpole when it turns into a little frog, complete with little legs and all of that. There is a transfiguration, a changing of figure, a changing of form and a changing of appearance, which, by the way, affects what they can do. A caterpillar cannot fly. A butterfly can. A tadball, 
tadpole cannot hop. Yeah, tadpole, that's what it is, it's a little ball. A tadpole cannot hop, but a little frog can, right? And so the point that I'm trying to make is in the midst of our transformation as God changes us and transforms us, He is recreating us in such a way that we will be able to accomplish things that we were no longer able to accomplish before. The same was true with Jesus, but there was a whole lot more going on with His transfiguration than what meets the eye. Now before we wade into it here, let's just, I feel like that it's imperative that I bring out that this is not the first transformation or or uh, transfiguration that Jesus has experienced. The first one probably that he experienced was when the Bible said that he left heaven's glory, he robed himself in humanity, he became a little lower than the angels, he gave himself to Calvary, to the way of the cross, and allowed himself to be crucified. Think about this, Jesus leaving the splendor of heaven, Jesus leaving the glory of heaven, Jesus leaving the dignity of deity, Jesus leading all, leaving all that that entailed and coming to the earth, robing himself in humanity, making himself even lower than angels, beings that he had created to worship. He makes himself lower than the angels and then to make matters worse, then he becomes the sacrificial lamb, the, the lamb that would become slain from the foundation of the world. So Jesus went through more than one transformation or transfiguration. Another transfiguration that Jesus went through was when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Hello. I said, when Jesus died, He didn't stay dead. Three days later, He rose in resurrection and power. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 3, the Bible said that He was proved alive by many infallible proofs and He was seen of over 500 brethren. And so Jesus was transfigured and transformed from a dead man to a live man. Hallelujah. And so there He was. And so we see different transformations that was taking place. So Jesus was transfigured back to His heavenly state here in Luke chapter 9 in, in verses 28 through 36, Jesus was transfigured back to His heavenly state on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter, James, and John were able to behold His majesty and see His glory. The Bible said in Luke 9, 32, Peter, but Peter and they that were with Him were heavy with sleep and when they were awake, they saw His glory and the two men that stood with him. First of all, could you imagine going to sleep, Jesus hanging around, and you, how many times have they went to sleep around him before? A lot of times, right? But could you imagine going to sleep and then waking up and all of a sudden you see his glory? Wow, wouldn't that be amazing? But then the Bible said something else too that's very significant for later on in the message. The Bible says here in Luke 9.32 that they saw His glory and the two men that, men that stood with Him. Who were those two men? The two men were Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So Jesus is standing here 
representing grace. And I'll read that to you in the scripture in just a few moments. Jesus is standing here representing grace in the middle of the law and the prophets. It was the law that declared that Jesus was coming. coming. It was the prophets that kept prophesying that Jesus was coming. And now Jesus is standing in heavenly transfiguration in front of Peter, James, and John. And they are eyewitnesses to His majesty, majesty, to His splendor, to His glory, and the presence of the law and the prophets. Hang on to that thought. The Apostle John later talked about this in the beginning of his gospel. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 And we beheld His glory. How come He didn't say something else? Because there's no other way to describe glory but to just call it glory. And the Bible says, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now look at this. Full of grace and truth. That glory was evidenced through the revelation of grace and truth. Do we need the touch of God upon our life? Do we need the, the, the influence of glory upon our life? What is glory? Glory is the ambience of God. It's the manifested presence of God. It's, the, it's what happens when God shows up to the atmosphere. It's the effect of God upon the atmosphere. That's what the glory of God is. The glory of God is revealed to those who are hungry. And so I need to ask you this morning, are we hungry for God's glory? I want to read a few scriptures to you out of, out of the Amplified Bible. The Bible says in Psalms 119 and verse 20, He says, My heart is breaking with longing that it has for your ordinances and judgment at all times. Psalms 119 verse 81 says, My soul languishes and grows faint for your salvation, but I hope in your word. John chapter 6 and verse number 35 says this, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me and cleaves to and trusts in and relies on me will never thirst anymore at any time. This is what happens when we get hungry for the glory of God. When we get hungry for the manifestation of the glory of God. When we get hungry for the demonstration of the glory of God. Jesus Himself said that we would never be hungry that, that we, if we cleave to Him. And that He who believes in and cleaves to and trusts in and relies on me will never thirst anymore at any time. So the glory of God is revealed to those who are hungry. And then the glory of God is also revealed to those who seek Him. So being hungry is one thing. And having the wherewithal to actually do something about it is something else. What does the Word of God say? The Bible says, if you seek after me, you will find me. The reason some people don't find God is because they don't seek after Him. The reason that God is not involved in a lot of people's lives is because people are just showing up, but they're not going after God. When we engage in worship, 
When we engage in praise, when we lift our hands and open up the gates to our soul for God to pour something into us and through us, then what we are doing is we are seeking after God. We're putting effort into our worship. And when we put effort into our worship and we start seeking Him, the promise of God to us is if you seek after me, you will find me. God is not hiding from you. He's not hiding his power. He's not hiding his anointing. He's not hiding revelation. God is not hiding from you. All you have to do is engage in worship and engage in praise and put some effort behind the seek and you will find. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So those who are hungry for the glory of God will experience the glory of God and have their thirst satisfied. Those who seek the revelation of God's glory will be found of God. And then His glory is also revealed to those who believe. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. Do we really believe? Do we really believe that Jesus is who He says He is? Do we really believe that we are who He says we are? Do we really believe that the Word of God is the infallible, anointed, God-breathed, rhema, logos, and then rhema, Word of God? Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Are we just going through the motions on Sunday? Are we just coming to church because we live in America and going to church on Sunday morning seems to be the thing to do? Not as much as it used to be, but it still is. I mean, is that, is that why we're in church? No, or do we really believe? Are we believers? Are we believers in the sonship of Jesus? Are we believers in Calvary? Are we believers in the power of the blood of Jesus? Are we believers in the fact that the tomb is not full, that it's empty, that an angel rolled away the stone and Jesus came forth in resurrection and in power? Are we believers? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe what Jesus said when he said, the works that I do, you will do in greater because I I'm going to ascend to my Father and send the Holy Spirit to you which will be with you that will empower you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Are we believers? 2 Peter 1 and 18 This voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So they saw his glory. They saw his glory. And we can see His glory too if we get hungry enough and do something about it, if we seek, and if we believe. Now I want you to go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And we're going to read Peter's account of this transfiguration in his own words. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21 says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at the next phrase, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What is majesty? Majesty is sovereign power. Majesty is divine authority. 
Majesty is the dignity that comes with deity. Majesty is the royal bearing or the acts aspect conferred upon someone who holds that place of royalty. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now listen very closely. Beginning with the first sermon on the day of Pentecost and continuing throughout their preaching and teaching, the apostles appealed to two lines of evidence upon which our faith in Jesus Christ rests. And here they are. Number one, the testimony of apostolic witness. And number two, the testimony of Old Testament prophecy. So number one, the testimony of apostolic witness and the testimony of Old Testament prophecy. They are saying, this is why we know that Jesus is the Messiah. This is why we know that Jesus is who he says that he is. Second Peter chapter 1, 16 through 18, I read to you verse number 16 when the Bible said that we did not follow fables. They saw him in splendor, glory, and majesty because they were eyewitnesses. Now, I want to kind of go back just a little bit, some of the preaching that we've been doing about, about Peter in the red letters. Jesus looks at Peter one day, and Jesus had taken all of them up to Caesarea Philippi. And they were standing up there, and thank you, Walt, for that DVD. I loved it. It was wonderful. It's working great right here in this message. Hallelujah. And so they're standing up there, and Jesus had taken them almost a two-day's journey up into Caesarea Philippi. And he takes them up into this particular area here where there's all kinds of paganistic gods. I mean, he takes them out of a place where Jesus is doing miracles. He takes them out of a place where people are giving their life to Christ in droves, where people are receiving and drinking in messages pertaining to the kingdom of God. He takes them into this place where, where there are all kinds of pagan gods, and there's worship in this particular area going on. There's a cave over here called the Gates of Hell. And what they would do is they would take these animals and sacrifices and they would toss these animals into the mouth of that cave that they called the gates of hell and there was a spring that would come up from the earth and they called that from the gods of the underworld. Now listen very closely. So Jesus takes them up into this particular setting and he looks around and there's worship going on to different kinds of gods. Pan is not I am. That's one of the gods that was there, Pan, the god Pan, who represented all of the paganistic gods. And they're standing there in that place of Caesarea Philippi, and there's this place over here called the Gates of Hell, and they're doing, they're doing all kinds of different uh, uh, types of worship and types of sacrifice and things like that. And they're standing here, and in this setting where people are worshiping all kinds of different pagan gods, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? And they looked and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet, some say all of these different types of things. And then, they, then Jesus looks at them and he says, okay, but then who do you say that I am? 
And the Bible says that Peter looked at him and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're God's son. And Jesus looked at him and said, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. So in the midst of all of this pagan influence, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are Peter, and upon this rock of revelation, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Paganistic worship, paganistic practices, people who do not believe in God will not prevail against. I'm going to tell you something. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. He is more powerful. He is, he is dynamic. He is full of splendor. He is full of power. He is full of glory. They said, we saw his majesty. And in the midst of that majesty, in the midst of that divine authority, in the midst of the dignity of that deity, in the midst of all of that, two men come and stand with him, Moses and Elijah. So they see Jesus standing there, the one that is full of grace and truth, in splendor and glory, with the law on one side and the prophets on the other. Now, let me continue on here. They said, we were eyewitnesses. Verse number 16 said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In Acts 10 and 41, Peter stated that he had ate and drank with Jesus after he was risen from the dead. That is an eyewitness account. Remember, continuing throughout their preaching, beginning on the day of Pentecost, the apostles appealed to two lines of evidence upon which their faith rests, that Jesus was who he says he was. Number one, it was the testimony of apostolic witness. So we see here, we see here they saw his splendor, glory, and majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was apostolic witness. Acts 10, 41, Peter stated they had ate and drank with Jesus after he was risen from the dead. That's apostolic witness. John describes his eyewitness account with the risen Christ like this. John, who was also on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He said we saw him, but not only did we see him, our hands have handled him. We've hugged him, we've touched him, we've been there with him, we've helped him for the life. Verse number two, for the life, speaking of the word of life, was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now look at verse number three. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What they were saying was, we are not talking to you about an imposter. We're not talking to you about someone that hasn't been verified. 
We're talking to you about someone that has been revealed to us by our Heavenly Father as Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's who he is. Even in the midst of paganistic ritual, even in the midst of other religions worshiping, even in the midst of it, we see him clearly as the Son of God. There's no doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no doubt that he can live inside of our heart. There's no doubt that he became the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. There's no doubt that his blood is still as good today, 2,000 years later as it was back then. There is absolutely no doubt Jesus is, was, and forever shall be the sacrificial lamb of Calvary. Amen. Amen. So that's evidence number one. Evidence number one, the eyewitness account of the apostles that they had saw his majesty. They had experienced his glory. They saw him transfigured in the presence of the law and the prophets as he propelled grace and looked at Peter and said, you're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, which is the carrier of the message of God's grace. Now we go on. The testimony of Old Testament prophecy. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So why is the prophecies of old a more sure word of prophecy now? The reason is because those prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Prophecies like Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 through 7 and Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 12 talked of a coming Messiah. Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies and the apostles and many others were eyewitnesses also. And then he goes on here in this passage of scripture and he says, Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. What did that mean? That simply means, and just let me kind of shrink it down real quick, that simply means that there are a lot of things that were declared by the Old Testament prophets, major and minor, that we could not explain until the day star arose in our heart and in our life. And when he arose in our heart and in our life as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, that now becomes the light of the world, shining light into dark places, shining light, repelling the cloud that covered prophecy and now we see him as who he is oh yes this is the ones that the prophets was talking about oh yes this is the one that the law was describing to us the lamb that would come that would take away the sin of the entire world not a lamb that would just cover sin but a lamb that would enter one time into the holy place to obtain eternal redemption for you and I so the blood of Jesus God's son could wash and cleanse and redeem and establish grace in the earth. Are you seeing that? Woo, hallelujah. Maybe I'm just a theologian getting all cranked up on this, but I can't, I can't help. It's, it's, it's proof that Jesus is who he says he is. 
So then we go on here. The Bible says that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. What does that mean? That means when Jesus, when Jesus is revealed, the cloud lifts. When Jesus is revealed, the cloud lifts. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. You know, it's, these people like to go around, I've got a revelation, I've got a revelation, I've got a revelation. I'm going to tell you something, that revelation's always been there. It's always been there. Here's the thing I found out. The closer I get to God, the clearer I see Him. Hmm? Hmm? The closer we get to God, the clearer we see Him. So, with the New Testament being the Old Testament revealed, we have to go back to the transfiguration. We have to take a look at what happened here. You got Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus when Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven, the same one who spoke out of the cloud from the Mount of Transfiguration that said, this is my beloved Son. And so you got Peter sitting there looking and he was able to see Jesus in his splendor and in his glory because he had submitted himself to the revelation of who Jesus was. You will never see Jesus as he really is unless you approach it with faith. You have to say, okay, you said this. I believe that. And then all of a sudden the revelation. And so here's Peter. And he's sitting there saying, you know, Upon this rock, I'll build my church, 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 church. First place in Scripture. Church was there. Ecclesia, the assembly of called out ones. The organism. Then later on, Jesus was talking. The Bible said, holy men of God wrote as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. And so later on, through the Holy Ghost, we hear that Christ is the head of the what? Church. And the church is the body of Christ. So we are his church. We are the body of Christ. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, the rock of the revelation that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Son of God. Upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So what you're going to be able to do, and what he's, what he's saying is, so you, you're here in this mount of transfiguration. Jesus had formed the church through the expression of his mouth, the creative force of God. The church was established in the earth because Jesus spoke it. And now, all of a sudden, in the midst of Moses and the law, and Elijah and the prophets... We have Jesus being revealed as grace and truth. You see that? Now, let me say this. Jesus, when he came, did not abolish the law. He satisfied it. He satisfied it. What does that mean? That means that no one will ever have to go to Calvary again. They would come every year and make sacrifices because that's what the law said. When Jesus came, 
He entered in that one time into the holy place to obtain eternal redemption for us. And in so doing, he satisfied the law. He fulfilled it. That means he filled it up. No room for anything else. The law is complete. So do we get rid of the law? No, we don't live under the law anymore. But we don't get rid of it because the law is our schoolmaster for things to come. It shows us things. We can go back into the law because we live with the revelation of Jesus Christ and we can see things that the prophets, when they were uttering it, didn't understand. We can see it because no prophecy is of any private interpretation when we live with the revelation of Jesus in our hearts. So we go back to the law and we let it teach us things about God. We let it teach us things about life. And we see things that are happening now that are verified. They're verified. The prophets were prophesying things they could not possibly understand. They were prophesying. But now we look back at them 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later, 5,000 years later. We see those prophecies and they're as clear as the, as the noonday sun to us. Why? Because we live in the dispensation of grace and truth where Jesus has been revealed and the light of that revelation shines upon those prophecies and we see Jesus as he is. Splendor power, glory, majesty. The Old Testament holy men of God spoke as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. Prophecy came not, verse 21, in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The New Testament being the Old Testament revealed, in the Old Testament holy men of God spake as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost because in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon people. In the New Testament the Holy Spirit comes into people and flows through people. So in the Old Testament the Bible said that the Holy Spirit would come upon holy men of God and they would speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In the New Testament, we are the vessels of the Holy Ghost where the Holy Ghost dwells and He just speaks through us constantly if we allow Him to do that. So when we look at it like that, we see that the transfiguration is more than just a neat Sunday school story. Right? The transfiguration is eyewitness proof. It's evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what it is. And so Peter, James, and John. See, the ministry of Jesus changed after that. If you really look at it, from that point on, Jesus went about setting up the church. He would teach things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Spent a lot of time with his disciples, talking to them about different things. Jesus was a fifth-level rabbi. He was a smart cookie. He was. He was. And so he would teach them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus went about setting things up for his ultimate sacrifice, then his resurrection, his ascension, and the establishment of the church on the earth. But in order for that to take place, Peter, James, and John had to get a revelation of grace and truth outside of 
the dispensation of grace and truth while they were still living in the dispensation of the law. Because see, at the, at the time that Jesus revealed this to them, Jesus had not yet been the sacrifice. Jesus had not been the, yet been the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. So all of that said, all of that said, let me say it like this. Jesus, the central figure of all Christianity. He's our prime example. A lot of people like to sing that song, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. Listen, I don't want to be like Jesus. I want to be like him in some ways, but there's some things Jesus had to deal with. You know, let's let Jesus be Jesus, okay? (laughs) Some things he went through. But Jesus was and forever shall be the central figure of all Christianity. And the same God that transformed him and transfigured him, changed his form, is the same God that wants to transform us today. He wants to transform us. God doesn't have a person to waste and he doesn't have an experience to drop to the floor. The reason we're hearing about the transfiguration in in this passage of Scripture is because God wanted us to look at that and say, wow, that's wonderful, that's great. Tie it all together. See the eyewitness account of who Jesus is. But then, what about us? Say, you know, God can transform me too. God can change me too. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, very simple. The Bible said old things have been passed away. All things have become new. That's transformation. You gave your life to Jesus. That's transformation. Later, as you grow in God and you become a disciple, a fully devoted and developing follower of Jesus Christ, there is a process that takes place. And we find it in the book of Corinthians where the Bible says that we put off the old man and we put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. That's transformation. The revelation of God's Word, God revealing His grace to you, God revealing His truth to you, you getting closer to God will transform your life. It'll change your life. So my question to you today is this. Do you really see Jesus as He is? Are you close enough to him? Or is there something inside of you that says, I want to draw closer to him. I want the Holy Spirit to flow through. See, Jesus wants to reveal himself to us today. He wants to reveal his splendor. He wants to reveal his majesty. He wants us to experience his glory and see his majesty. He wants us to see him for who he is. Because in seeing him for who he is, we see us as he sees us. From the beginning of time, it has been the desire of God to be in fellowship with man. You say, I want to please God. Spend time with him. There's nothing he craves more than that. Some of the most precious times of my life is when I'm just alone with God. I developed that habit as a teenager 
and an old stump through the woods and over the hill behind the trailer where I was growing up. And I'd go to that stump all by myself. And I fell in love with God at that stump. Through the years, I watched Him change me as I've drawn closer. I've watched Him transform my thought patterns and transform my life. I've watched Him change situations and people around me. I've watched Him change all of that stuff as I've drawn closer to Him. And I'm at this stage in my life right now where my greatest desire is to help people to fall deeply in love with Jesus. We can teach you theology. We can teach you homiletics. We can teach you all of that stuff. But if we do all of that, Dr. Sutton, and we don't teach them how to just love God, then we fail. So my question to you today is, are you satisfied with your relationship with the Lord? Or do you want Him to draw you closer? Let's all stand. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.